This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Hive for your consideration, Best International Feature. Winner of the World Cinema Grand Jury Prize Directing Award and Audience Award at Sundance, Blair Tabasholi's Hive is based on the searing true story of Faria Hoti and the women of Krusha, whose husbands went missing during the war in Kosovo, as they start a business together and struggle against their small village's patriarchal ways. The Hollywood Reporter calls it an engrossing, utterly classic tale of overcoming adversity. Now available in the Academy Screening Room. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Krupp. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. The Sundance Film Festival is once again in full swing, which of course means that our intrepid Film Comment podcasters are working around the clock to report on the offerings on view at this year's showcase for independent cinema. Though we had hoped to be reporting live from the snow-covered streets of Park City, Utah, the 2022 Sundance Film Festival is all online, just like last year's. For the next two weeks, we'll be bringing you podcasts and dispatches covering the highs and lows of this year's virtual festivals, from correspondents far and wide. To stay up to date on all our Sundance 2022 coverage, keep your eyes on this space and subscribe to the Film Comment letter at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the first episode of the Film Comment podcast, Sundance 2022 coverage. In the past, we used to do these podcasts on site from Park City, and we used to do them from all corners of uh, the Doubletree Hotel and the Eccles Theater and whatnot. This year, like everyone, we're attending the festival from our living rooms and bedrooms and couches, and that's where we are for this podcast. But thanks to the miracle of technology, we've managed to gather some great guests to help us track the festival and reflect on its um, selection. So I'm going to ask our guests to introduce themselves. We have an FC regular, our, our one of our favorite critics, Abby, with us today. Hi, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast. My name is Abby Sun, and I'm a curator for The Dockyard, a bi-weekly screening series of new nonfiction films at the Battle Theatre in Harvard Square, and also a freelance film critic. Great to have you back, Abby. I know you've been deep in the Sundance trenches like for a few weeks now, so want to hear all about that. And we have a, I believe, a film comment podcast newbie, though, Cassie, you have written uh, for the magazine in the past. Yeah, back in my New York days, I yeah wrote for film comment and also interned there for a while. So, Well, great to have you on the pod. Of course, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. You're now in Los Angeles? I'm in Ojai, California, which is like an hour and a half north of Los Angeles. Yeah. And Yuri, um, staff critic for Vanity Fair. Yes, I'm a staff critic at Vanity Fair. And I also edit for another Gaze journal. Well, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hopefully you've been uh, enjoying Sundance so far. You know what? I, I feel like everyone's having mixed feelings, both of being burnt out from just everything. Streaming. The miracles of technology, as Devika <laughs> called it. And also, has anyone else felt like they had to watch more films than they ever like logistically would be made be made to watch in a way just because like the physical having to get from place to place means that you would see a few fewer films maybe a week and now it's like you just constantly streaming everything I do feel the pressure to like 
I today I was like, should I watch something while I'm brushing my teeth? Should I watch something while I'm drinking coffee? Like I do feel the pressure to fill every like break in my day or waking minute with the movies. The the online experience does create that like weird pressure. And of course, there's so much FOMO when you're on the ground too, and you're trying to squeeze in a lot, but you're more aware of just the physical limitations. And it does, I mean... We've been talking about the virtual festival experience for a year now. Like, I don't think we need to rehash it. We all know what it is like to sit at home and watch movies. But I think with Sundance in particular, it really, or maybe it is this year, I I really do wish that there, there was more context, you know, to some of these movies. Because a lot of the movies, I think, really... Um, come to life when there's conversation around them when the makers you you can like interact with the makers a little bit and you get to sort of see what they're rep what they represent to the industry and to the community and without that context some of these do feel you know I I feel like my experience of them is a little bit thin and incomplete it could be because you're brushing your teeth while you're watching the movies. So. Absolutely. Just one. Likely, yes. <laughs> if I could just jump in here, I guess um, my background might be a little bit different from everybody else's because I started in the film industry as a film festival programmer. So as a programmer, I was watching, um, you know, fine cuts and rough cuts that were submitted to Sundance. So my experience of watching Sundance premieres and the films that were at Sundance never actually started with the festival. They always started like months beforehand. Um, so for me, like, I guess just to make it really clear to listeners, the virtual reality is that um, a lot of us are watching like in the virtual screening windows of the festival right now. I'm not getting, you know, like private screener links to every single film that I'm watching. But for many of them, I am. And then for the other half, I'm watching um, kind of more live during the festival. But that's why Davika was saying, like, I've already been watching films for a couple of weeks because um I've been watching these screener links of films and it can be quite an interesting experience because sometimes those films aren't actually finished. They don't have finished color correction or sound design or music rights cleared or anything like that. So I'm watching something that is um, picture locked, but it's not necessarily the final iteration of the film that's being shown. Also, a lot of films do get re-edited after Sundance or after a world premiere. Um, you know, even after they get sold and things like that. So, um, you know, the films that we'll be talking about today, like not all of them I saw within the last four days. Some of them will be a slightly older in my memory, but, you know, it, it is kind of this, it's created this fragmented experience um, that is not the festival as a whole. I think, Abby, that's a good point and something you made in your first dispatch for Filmmaker as well, which I encourage people to read. You just noted that you know, virtual viewing, the virtual experience has existed, you know, well before the pandemic for programmers, particularly, but also for critics, you know, we watch so many things on links before festivals and release. Um, and one movie that people are talking about a lot that I do wonder how it would have played had I seen it in the theater is Fire of Love, which is directed by Sarah Dosa. And it's gotten a lot of acclaim already I even read that it's already part of some like bidding war and I was underwhelmed and I know that we have some mixed reactions here as well so maybe I don't know Cassie you've seen it right 
Yeah. So the film, which actually got sold to National Geographic for somewhere in the seven figures, is an archival documentary pooling from the archives of two volcanologists, um, Katya and Maurice uh, Kraft. And in, you know, I, I believe beginning in the 60s, they kind of that's when they met. And they, she's a geochemist, he's a geologist, and they became very interested in volcanoes and became these kind of superstars of that scene. And they took so many photos and so much video of their experiences kind of chasing volcanoes. And they ended up dying in the early 90s at Unzen, one of the big volcanoes in Japan that erupted. And had and a, and a lot of the film is both about their kind of love story. It's all with a voiceover by Miranda July, as, as well as what attracts them to the kind of natural phenomena of volcanoes. And I think it, it makes sense that National Geographic bought this film because most of the films in this world of kind of natural phenomena, they don't have this good of archival footage and this detailed and um, idiosyncratic so it has both the personalities of the volcanologist as well as a kind of reverence for the natural world they're seeing. And I think if you're thinking on a maybe the more populist level, that's what's going to attract people to this film, especially people who maybe who like unlike us don't watch a ton of films. And there's going to be something uncanny about this and attractive in that way. And I and that's why I understand the response of, oh, we need, you know, we need to get this film distributed. And it's kind of similar with another National Geographic film, Free Solo, which, you know, I, you know, I don't think on the level of film, that's an extraordinary film at all, but the kind the grandness of what you're seeing. And if you go to theater to see that film, there is something arresting about it. So for me, I kind of, I went into this kind of thinking, oh, you know, is this going to be like an interesting art film? And then once I started watching it, I'm like, oh, this isn't that actually. Like the way it's being sold maybe to us as film critics isn't quite right. It's more of a kind of outre nature documentary, I would say. And my biggest issue with it was the most interesting parts were clipped off, like them speaking at length about their ideas and, you know, their evolving ideas around disaster protocol by different countries etc etc those were all kind of truncated in favor of a kind of poetics that built around Miranda July's voiceover and so there were things there that really didn't work for me but I was fascinated by the footage itself just one thing I wanted to respond to I think you're very right Cassie that um the reason it's being distributed and marketed the way it is is because you know it's an it might be a novelty uh, for people and as someone who grew up watching a lot of national geographic i can totally see you know it it fits in with that sort of genre of of films i did feel a little underwhelmed even by that footage though and not just because i necessarily watch a lot of documentaries I will out myself as someone who will sometimes spend like an hour at 2 a.m. watching like or Googling like videos of huge waves, you know, and because it's just watching these like awesome natural phenomenon and like, you know, experiencing the sublime. And I so it, it to me, it felt like, yes, of course, volcanoes are huge and beautiful and 
you don't see like on TikTok every day someone taking a close up of like an active volcano. So I'm not saying like, oh, this is so passe. But I felt like the film's approach was similar to this kind of more banal and like, you know, pretty commonplace approach to, you know, capturing things that, for the lack of a better term, like blow your mind. Just like, bro, check this out. Not even like bro check this out, but there's this kind of twee appreciation of nature in it, you know? Did anybody see um, Rock Bottom Riser, the Fern Silva film from last year? I was actually going to say, so the opening sequence of Rock Bottom Riser, which is kind of this craned drone shot of an active volcano and its destructive forces. This is Fern Silva's documentary um, that essentially is a pun on all the different ways that rock, (laughs) the word, rock can be interpreted via the framework of Hawaii, which is its setting, includes, um, you know, volcanoes and rock music and the rock, the actor, um, and um, his, you know, own indigenous uh, ancestry. But this this film has sort of populist leanings, um, fire of love, that is. It is funded by Sandbox Films, which is a new production company that specializes in films with scientific worth. Um, so while it has this love story wrapping between Maurice and Katia Croft, it also is pushing what um, Cassie mentioned is kind of this larger message that we should listen to scientists and the knowledge that they make um, in order to help save human lives, which is emphasized quite clearly here. But it also kind of takes this uh, approach that other all archival or archival documentaries have done recently in performing media analysis. And it does this for a few different reasons. One is because Maurice and Katia Kraft, the reason why this film exists, because uh, this couple uh, are quite well known as volcanologists. They have scholarships named after them at um, geology programs, schools, universities across the world. Uh, they have, uh, they were featured in a two minute segment of Werner Herzog's documentary Into the Inferno about volcanoes a few years ago, but they were independent researchers and they funded their own lifestyles and their own research as geochemists and geologists through writing books and making movies and media appearances, broadcast media appearances of their own research. And so the archive exists because they made a lot of this material themselves. The film also takes on uh, the responsibility of performing media analysis on a lot of the things that they are producing. What it is that went into producing these images. What is it that they were trying to convey the multiple shots that they do for things that aren't necessarily shown in a finished film. One thing I found interesting and quite unsatisfying about this film is that it doesn't actually provide to me a lot of insight about these media appearances, first of all. Um, It's because it has this framework of the love story, it spends a lot of its time explaining why the two of them are never in a frame together. For instance, there's only one interview where the two of them show up together. Otherwise, Maurice takes all the TV appearances and Katia writes the books. Uh, Maurice shoots the video and Katia shoots the photographs. uh, And it has these really surface level 
evaluations of what these differences in gendered work processes mean for the film, but it also is just unable to contend with anything beyond the surface level. And I will say on the beauty of the images, uh, I did listen to the Q&A that the filmmakers did after the public screening at Sundance, and they said that they were actually able, they were given access to this 200 hours of the archive from the Kraft family foundation uh, because they promised to digitize the entire archive for uh, for them. Uh, and a lot of the things have been on DigiBeta before, but it hadn't completely been archived. But most of the most striking images in this film do actually already appear in Werner Herzog's documentary, Into the Inferno, um, including the two still images that the film production is using for publications. So it's kind of interesting to see like what's being promoted as something new and what's already existed. Because to me, this is kind of the issue that seeing a lot of these archival documentaries just in general. This is the second year in a row that Sundance has actually opened its US documentary competition with an archival film. Because last year they opened with Summer of Soul, Love's documentary about the um, music festival the Harlem music festival which I think is a beautiful film yeah I'm I'm interested in this because I mean I don't know that in and of itself archival I was thinking about the Raoul Peck film I'm not your negro you know fused a lot of archival footage that people have seen from YouTube but he obviously he shot a lot of original footage as well for that film or the princess which is also in Sundance this year Ed Perkins film about princess Diana which uses a lot of the imagery we already know but kind of and and some archival footage we really don't know and and or most of us wouldn't know and kind of remixes it with no kind of voiceover no commentary um and kind of forces you to make sense of of differing opinions approaches and perspectives around diana around the royal family and how I think I'm not sure for me that the, it's a archival footage itself has commercial prospects, but that what can what certain filmmakers can achieve through it in terms of whether it's like an, an aesthetic achievement, it seems to be, or whether it's one on comment on the level of commentary that can kind of find its way into the zeitgeist. And what you're saying, Abby, about it being about kind of promoting the idea that we should listen to scientists feels like the kind of most compelling part of, 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 of it in terms of how it could be commercialized because we already have, you know, a burgeoning conversation around anti-intellectualism and scientists being listen, listened to. It's interesting how much the film omits its own context. And yeah, it, I also think that any archival film has to be deeply edited but the way it's edited to feel seamless and to feel spontaneous it has a kind of seductive quality and I think if you don't have the knowledge of of the context of the film it's very easy to be seduced by it you're listening to the film comment podcast sign up today for the film comment letter it's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comments editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. 
Sign up today at filmcomment.com. As you were talking, Cassie, I was thinking about uh, another film that I saw this morning, um, Riotsville, USA, the Sierra Pettengill documentary. And um, one of the things that you, you said that made me think of it was this focused message, this kind of political message or, or political or maybe social commentary, I think is what you said. And I think that that's a thread that, I'm, that I've seen through running through many of the Sundance documentaries that I've seen so far, a effort on the part of the filmmakers to fashion archival material and doc, or documentary material into something that they can use to convey a message <laughs> of some kind or, or to comment on society today. And I find it to be personally sort of reductive. But uh, Riotsville, I think, is an interesting instance of this. Do you want to talk a little bit, Devika? I know you had you saw it too, right? Yeah, I think what both Cassie and Abby are saying about archival footage and and what you just said, Clint. I think this is something I've been wrestling with with some of the films I've been seeing, and not just at Sundowns. I think there does seem to be this trend towards archival films and also a trend towards media analysis, like what you know, Abby was talking about this, there seems to be an archival churn. And I think there's this, uh, the sense in the zeitgeist, so to speak, that we need to be reading images and, you know, and kind of parsing images for their messages of power and what they say about society. And a lot of that attention is being directed towards images from the past. And in some cases, you know, in, in like in the case of Fire of Love, what I felt was weak about it is that that topicality feels very forced, you know, and this kind of taking a story that actually, to me, f- did not feel like a very universal or um, a story that had a lot of implications outside of the lives of these two idiosyncratic people who ob- obviously have left a big impact uh, institutionally and culturally, you know, in their little sphere. But it didn't seem to me like this story was representative of something like of global cultural importance. And that particular connection felt forced to me. And with Riotsville, it's almost like I have kind of the opposite concern where the film seems to take for granted that we know why this footage footage is important, you know? And so it seems to take for granted that studying all this footage from the 60s and and also to give people a sense of what the film is about. Um, It's an archival essay composed of uh, footage shot by the state, by the U.S. government or for public uh, broadcast, uh, mostly in the 60s and 70s. And a lot of it is devoted to training exercises that the uh, U.S. military underwent in order to learn how to manage civil disorders or how to curb riots. Um, and it focuses on these two model towns that were built on two army bases, and they were called Riotsville, USA. And they enact these scenarios of of uh, riots there in front of an audience of Uh, you know, military personnel. And it's very uncanny to watch them enact the role of the instigator, you know, enact the role of an anti-war protester, of a black uh, civil rights protester, and then enact what they think the response of the cops or the police are in these scenarios, you know, which is, of course, like a little bit of a delusion. And then, and the thing is, they really throw themselves into these performances. So they really do 
feel realistic and then you hear the audience clapping and so there's it's it's like this moment of play that has like you know real world consequences and i think what the film is trying to do is take these instances and basically show perhaps how they've shaped the relationship between the people and the state and the state's response to uh, riots and protests, even in the present day, how the roots of all of this can be ta- traced back to this very pivotal moment in American history. Uh, the film also digs into the Kerner Commission, for example. But I, there are so many things the film, I think, doesn't contextualize like it even though it starts with a note that says that all the footage is public footage which is you know free of copyright uh, because it's state produced footage it doesn't ever explore the implications of that you know at i was hoping that at some point the filmmakers would tell us what this footage is leaving out because if it is footage shot by the government, that means there are things being left out. There are things being selectively portrayed in a certain way. And so I just, you know, it doesn't zoom out in that way. And I think it, yeah, like I said, it, it takes for granted that we will make this broad connection between the past and the present. But I was looking for more specific connections you know, that are emerging from the film's research and the film's like particular ordering of images. And so it kind of stays entirely in the past and it stays entirely within this public footage. Well, I just kind of, I kind of disagree. I think it says it's too much in, it's too much located in the present. It's looking at this footage without, and without, it elides a lot of the particulars of the time of the footage itself. And I think I would have much... I just wanted less commentary, less con- less context, maybe a little bit of context, but less uh, aestheticization of the footage to a certain extent for polemical gains. Well, I think commentary and context are different in this film because there is an actual voiceover and that voiceover doesn't actually provide context. It is more like um, poetically describing the footage or making sort of more poetic connections. The film also, you know, introduces the idea of these riots fills, but it also starts before the building of these riots fills with the Kerner Commission and LBJ's commissioning of the Kerner Commission to provide uh, supposedly nonpartisan, but he really wanted, uh, I think, the same thing that we see happening today in terms of the January 6th Commission and accusations of foreign interference that um, LBJ really wanted evidence of foreign interference uh, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Outside outside instigators, I believe, is the origin of the term. Exactly. And the film does a lot through these this on-screen text, which is actually something I quite admire about. So the film is directed by Sarah Pettengill, and it's edited by Nels Bangerter, who is known at Sundance for editing more quote-unquote experimental documentaries like Camera Person, uh, but stories films, uh, which don't rely on a voiceover scaffolding and in order to build context and in order to build a narrative thrust and sequencing and all of that and together what they've done in this film is they they start with the riots fills but they do pull back and then they extend beyond the riots fills which were uh there were exercises conducted at riots fills usa's in the u.s in the summer of 67 um after a couple of instances of civil unrest but it we all know the year 1968 as a year where there were hundreds 
hundreds of cities where all this was occurring. The film also ends with mainstream media coverage, broadcast television coverage of uh, quote-unquote riots in 1968. Because one of the arguments that the film is making is that a lot of these media narratives were actually rehearsed during Riotsville. Uh, one of the most striking instances that it brings up is this allegation that there were snipers. <laughs> that's a, an excellent reading of, of it, but I don't. I'm not sure that that, that that's entirely clear to for, to me anyway. That that was the um, one of the intentions of the filmmakers. And I think that's because of this poetic voiceover, perhaps. Which is, by the way, written by Toby Hazlitt, um, who wrote a really great essay on uh, the 2020 protests for N plus one. And the voiceover is sort of, it. it's interesting, it's not, it doesn't cover the whole film. And then there are these chunks of voiceover uh, which are read out by, I believe, a voice actor. So it's neither Sierra nor Toby. There's a real, uh, there's a kind of like Adam Curtis vibe to it a little bit. And it seemed like the influence was there drifting through the, the tear gas on the screen. Um, but I do think, I do agree with Abby that the context provided by the on-screen text was uh, was really useful and actually um, did provide this kind of, uh, did kind of like, buttress the argument and provide a structure to the film that otherwise we would not have had. I do want to make clear though that like me providing this context and what I think the film really does well is not against the criticisms that Devika provided about the film which uh, are resonant to me as well because the film does really have this single-minded focus on the officialized status narrative. And in an interview uh, with Vadim Rizov at Filmmaker Magazine, Sierra, um, where Vadim actually asked her, um, asked the director, like, why the focus on these narratives? Because it precludes the existence of protest narratives, of counter-narratives that were present within contemporaneous, like, independent documentary footages, any any sort of, you know, resistance activist coverage of these uprisings, these quote-unquote riots, um, why then hew so closely to the state narrative? And what Sierra responded with was that she didn't want to claim ownership over resistance narratives. And I'm just totally recapping this also. And this and also that she felt like it was as a white filmmaker, her responsibility in order to interrogate the state narrative. And this is a quite interesting conundrum that I think has been facing uh politically aware documentary filmmakers, especially white documentary filmmakers in the U.S. these days, because at the one hand, you want to allow space and not take up space for people of color, Black filmmakers, to tell the stories of their own communities and of resistance narratives. Um, but how do you still ethically participate in these conversations? I think this idea of interrogating the footage is, I think it's interesting. Like, I actually do think it's interesting to read, look back and read how the state has captured, state or public broadcast services have captured this time. It's just that the film, in in watching the film, you never really get a sense of why that choice was made, you know? And you don't really get that kind of interrogation of it as state footage other than that opening text sorry just what you said there I feel like I haven't seen this film full disclaimer but 
it's bringing up a lot of what like is an issue around certain documentary. It's not for me, it's not that, you know, they chose to, you know, focus on this versus this. It's often like, what is your why here? And like, did you actually explore that? Were you actually curious enough about that to, to dig in deep? Because it, a lot of what you're saying is bringing up, you know, again, Raul Peck series, Exterminate All the Brutes. And that focuses on media narratives and film and, and, and multiple histories. And he does, and he, the reason I feel like he's able to get around the issue and, and really kind of hold a lot of conflicting and difficult ideas is because he's, he follows it as far as he can go. And he takes so many approaches and really holds the material he has and looks at it in, in, in multiple ways. And he has a very compelling and clear why. To be clear, yeah, I, I agree with you there. I think that it is, uh, I don't want to dismiss this movie. One-sided agitprop is perfectly fine for me. I think my problems were that more that it, that for some of, were that it fell into what I kind of see as uh, aesthetic traps or sh- uh, shorthand for a certain kind of documentary modes you know that yeah significance that is that are difficult to avoid i and when you're trying to get into sundance perhaps so speaking of revolutionary art when you finish saving the world <laughs> by jesse eisenberg i love that intro yeah one of the most revolutionary films <laughs> If you want to talk about one-sided agitprop, we have found the film for you. I, I actually, I know that this is maybe not a popular opinion, but I thought it was kind of a sweet movie, and yeah, that's uh, that's my take. I thought it was. Here's the thing. I think there's like Jesse Eisenberg. He also writes these short stories, humorous short stories. Um, that often have to deal, they, they're all kind of situated around mother-son relationships and eccentricity and someone who's very tapped into maybe the horrors of the world and someone who's kind of blissfully unaware or, or just a little bit ridiculous. And so I, I felt the framework of the movie was really interesting. And this is what makes it so disappointing is that he, and talk about, you know, using kind of shorthands, aesthetic shorthands, he uses all of them, all of the indie, you know, festival film, every last one. The close-up of Julianne Moore's face as she's driving and, you know, she, you know her face is just, uh, yeah, it, like it's like shriveling up with this unsaid torment about her relationship with her family. I she was just cries. Like, she sits at her car in her car and cries yeah. after a particularly fraught encounter. Yeah, no, it's it's like uh, the thing that uh, you know. I think that this is not a good movie, but I thought it was still kind of sweet. Is that that was like like I think that also I think that in the same way that I th- you were gonna say that. You were talking about Eisenberg's writing, and I was and I was thinking about this afterward. Most of the writing that I've read by him are shouts and murmurs pieces for the New Yorker. So, like you know, these are kind of light pieces. You know, we, to ex- to come to to expect the squid and the whale from this is maybe too much. If this was like a silly little film, and it was mostly the thrust was mostly comedic, I actually thought it could have really worked. And to speak of another film that 
I, you know, people have mixed feelings on, but that worked for me because it was mostly because it was just very funny with sharp stick. Like I just was laughing throughout that film. The Eisenberg is about um, a mother played by Julianne Moore, who's very uptight and she's a social worker who's opened her own domestic violence shelter and her, and she, you know, she loves classical music. She drives a tiny little smart car. Um, she speaks in a very kind of um, refined uptick, I guess I would, that's how I would describe it. And then his, her son played by Finn Wolfhard of Stranger Things fame is a TikTok adjacent platform star um, who has fans mostly in it seems in East Asia and he plays these kind of silly little love songs that he takes very seriously but he also he has a huge crush on a girl at school who's like deeply politically knowledgeable a leftist um probably with communist leanings it seems like and who's who's very eloquent and passionate in speech but who he doesn't understand the word what, what she's saying and uh, I love that all the all the high school kids in Bloomington Indiana speak like New Yorker <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing it's like maybe one char- one or two characters with this deep knowledge you would believe but it seems it's like it's his whole school is this way and he and his one friend are the kind of non what he calls polit- not political <laughs> um and it's funny in that his lack of understanding of like specific politics actually really tracks, but the film doesn't really deal with that in an interesting way. Well, the film seems to have the same level of understanding of what is politics because the girl that he has a crush on who's supposed to represent this other kind of person who has a very committed understanding of politics just drops these lines you know that, that just these template lines that i i suppose are sup, I, I suppose are you know meant to represent like a high school radical and you know he follows her to this uh what is it called like a revolutionary arts center or something like that where people where there's like an open mic night yeah an open mic night and people sing songs and do spoken word about colonialism i think they open with solidarity forever yeah yeah it's a very reductive, even the film's example of what committed politics looks like is so reductive. You know, that's what really bothered me. Also, Julianne Moore's character's politics are brittle, and like her, like herself. Yeah, but she, she wants to get this boy, I mean, the one of the boys staying at her, his, her shelter with his mother, she wants to get him into Oberlin when he's clearly not interested in it. Norris's mother and I thought that was strange because you would think a character who her for who you know there's a strong backstory of kind of revolutionary involvement would understand why this wasn't right it 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 just creates these easy shortcuts for the characters to get into conflict like that was that was my biggest issue with the film was like yeah you can have these satirical um representations of different groups if you're going to do something explosive or interesting with it but what he does instead is he just brings them to the like meekest and most annoying conflict with like the stakes are so low you know yeah and the thing (laughs) with you know like Baumbach films like Squid and the Whale and those they they come from a place of understanding that you don't need big ideological differences to like hate your mom like you don't (laughs) you know like mothers and sons and 
uh, and spouses can have really strained relationships based on the most trivial things. And n- at no point in this movie did I understand why Julianne Moore hates her son so much. He's a completely normal teenager. Yes, he spends all his time like on the internet, but he's making music, not doing drugs or, I don't know, roaming the streets. Like he seems like a completely nice and normal kid who is a little oblivious, but like he's a teenager. <laughs> yeah. He's actually extremely patient with her. <laughs> yeah. And, like, very, very nice and, and to everybody around him. But yeah, yeah the whole sense central conflict is like very artificial and strange and unlike Bombac, I feel like it's not really probably rooted in in like sincere feelings like personal I think that experience. that or personal <laughs> I don't know I don't know I don't know if you need personal experience necessarily to make some, to make a film that is rooted in in real feeling but like the squid in the whale other Bombac films are very much like they ring true these relationships ring true and here they seem constructed for the purposes of the narrative, for the purposes of uh, a joke. I felt like it was he was trying to make a film version of a Deborah Eisenberg story, but the story it wasn't a Deborah Eisenberg story. Like the text wasn't good, <laughs> and so he had tried he tried to create these. And and again, like the I, the Noah Baumbach comparison is definitely apt, and clearly there's that stru- those structures and idiosyncrasies are there well also there's like the bad singer songwriter stuff i think is the instant connection with squid in the whale like the and like the cringe the extremely cringe strumming of the guitar uh speaking of that era of filmmaking and oh, i think you mentioned oberlin college and there's your segue <laughs> shout out to oberlin alum <laughs> lena dunham who's New film, Sharp Stick, also uh, just, I think, premiered last night, the night before last? Yeah. Sundance, yeah. I think this movie also makes no sense psychologically. Like, the characters don't, would never exist. In re- like, this is not a John Cassavetes movie. It's not a Jenna Rollins movie. And about, she said, I think, in interviews that, like, she watched all the Jenna Rollins movies and, that's, and then arrived at this film. I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. These this movie seems like a fairy tale to me it starts from this place of artifice and you if you go with it i think that it is rooted though in like a real uh, emotional place and i think unlike maybe the eisenberg it it does ring true to me in that way and and it's also very funny what's it about what is it about it's about a a young woman named sarah joe who's 26 years old and is a virgin and she lives with her mother played by uh uh, Jennifer Jason Lee and um, her sister Taylor Page. Taylor Page. Oh, the of Zola fame. <laughs> and also Janixa Bravo plays um, her teacher. Oh, this is a pretty cool cast, though. And she and I, th- I think Scott Speedman of Felicity fame <laughs> is also in it as a porn star who she becomes obsessed with. So Sarah Jo uh, is a social worker who's working with a special needs child and at his home and she starts an affair with the father of the of the child in order to lose her virginity and the father's played by John Bernthal right and the mother is played by Lena Dunham herself who's also playing the pregnant mother yeah and she's great in it all I mean I think all the performances in this film 
are really, I mean, I think it does speak to Lena Dunham's talent as a director specifically, as well as, as a writer, because it is just one of those laugh out loud, funny films. There's one scene on the kitchen floor, I won't give away, where you think it's going one way emotionally, and then you just find yourself laughing even though it's still going that way emotionally downhill I mean she's so funny she's so funny in that too though I also yeah. think like she's like her she just says don't touch me don't touch me. I think oh, yeah. it's just very fun so this young woman just like loses her virginity and just like kind of goes on like a sex quest of some kind to like explore her pleasure and uh discover herself discover herself but really it's because she wants to prove to herself that she can conquer her sexuality because she's been rejected and I thought the interesting thing about this film and a lot of people will probably have questions about this character because she's 26 years old but she kind of has this um, thrift store LA style where she kind of almost seems to dress like a Mormon teenager right or like a Snow White character like she's wearing like puffy shouldered like polka dot dresses yeah and she's very strange but I saw the Jenna Rollins comparison actually without hearing Lena Dunham say that because in, especially in a woman under the influence, I think the film is often interpreted that Jenna Rollins character is like going through some mental break, but really like, I, and I remember John Cassavetti talking about how it's just that, you know, he's, it's this deeply unconventional woman who the husband is supporting. And I, what really rung true for me wasn't just the emotional thrust of the film, but also these characters specifically. I feel like they're very specifically rooted in a certain socioeconomic space in LA of hustlers who can't quite make the hustle work. So the mother is this landlord who is like, <laughs> who's like a very kind of California, like deep intuitive woman who the reason why Taylor Page is her daughter is because she befriended a pregnant woman she met, I think at the mall, who didn't have anywhere to go and helped her see this pregnancy to term. And then this woman ended up leaving with a boyfriend when the baby was born and she, Taylor Page became her daughter. And adopted her and um there there are all of these kind of stories within the story that hint at why Sarah Joe is the way she is why she's in this extreme arrested development but also kind of deeply insightful and totally self-sufficient amazing with the kids that she works for because she has this childlike she's so in tune with this childlike aspect of herself and you see how both her mother and her sister themselves are also in arrested development so that's kind of like the bond between them is built around refusing to integrate into what people say makes you an adult and I felt like that it actually rung true for me both because of like different scenes and personas that you'll find in LA that are like baffling I think if you don't <laughs> if you're I don't, not in that world but also I, for maybe an, uh, the criticisms against younger generations who aren't preparing their lives around an idea of an adult of adulthood or of fitting in because maybe it's there's less of a, a drive for conformity so now everybody's different and everybody is um there's that whole thing about how everyone has ADHD now but like maybe it's just like 
everybody is kind of embracing the aspects of themselves that were perceived as unemployable or not able to integrate into society. And that's what made the characters kind of really work for me is because it does challenge an audience member that maybe might come in with an ex expectation that people, okay, adults, a 26 year old acts in a certain way. I think that's true. I, I think that it's an interesting movie and we will talk about it more in a later podcast. So I don't want to get too, too into it, yeah. <laughs> but the 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 general ones that it did remind me of is the scene in Minion Moskowitz when she's drinking with her friend and talking about like going to the movies and how the uh, the fantasy of the characters on the screen are is always uh, it's very different from reality. And I think this movie kind of like uh, has has something to say about that as well. Um, all right, I think that that is a good. Does anybody else have anything they want to say before we? <laughs> before we wrap things up yeah shout outs yeah shout outs shout outs to um my mom of course <laughs> no i don't who are we shouting out i did really incredibly love miha which is spanish for daughter i believe i don't speak spanish so i apologies for any butchering that i do to like chicano culture or anything <laughs> in this recap um but it is a documentary that's mostly in the observational film form about Doris Munoz, who is a music manager. She is the person who is credited in magazine profiles within the film itself, um, just everywhere that I could look up as well as discovering Kuko, who was signed to Interscope a couple of years ago, just kind of this big young musician. Um, they parted ways near the beginning of this film's timeline and so the film really centers around Doris, the main character, um, her sponsorship of green card applications with her parents along with her professional attempts to discover another musician and so it becomes this unexpected two-hander. Um, it becomes quite sentimental in the end but for me it totally earned every stripe i mean i cry i was crying like uncontrollably at the end <laughs> wow that's a commendation the people on screen are just like very you know good good characters to have in your documentary they're really good people yeah yeah um and with a lot of grace and delicacy and there is a power dynamic there's a power difference between Doris, the manager, and this young musician that she's trying to package um, and convinces to fly out from Dallas to Los Angeles for a work trip on this musician's 21st birthday. I mean, there are some quite complicated things that are happening within the film. And I think Miha, as a film, handled it with enormous delicacy and care. And there are some super intense moments between characters and their family members. Um, that are really sensitively portrayed. So I just want to shout out Miha. Um, and then there are a couple of other films too, like Mars One, which was the opening night film for the world narrative competition made by some Black Brazilian filmmakers, Gabriel Martin, another film about a family, The Martins Family. Um, and this filmmaker has made semi-autobiographical films before but the press notes for this film said it was not autobiographical which is quite an interesting decision because the family has the same name as his family but it's this really well done ensemble piece i do think it is a huge mainstreaming of his previous work it has the super 
saccharin music cues. Um, it has some, what feels to me, a little bit contrived plot occurrences. Hey Cassie, did you have any shout outs? Yeah, I really like Gentle, um, a film by two Hungarian filmmakers. It's about a bodybuilder, um, a woman bodybuilder, who it's handler. Her boyfriend was a kind of formerly huge, famous bodybuilder in Hungary. Um, and for me, and the woman who plays the bodybuilder is in real life, a bodybuilder. So she, there was no actor who had to go through crazy preparations for this film, but it both deals in the physical sacrifice of bodybuilding, as well as a potential sacrifice to life with all the steroid use, um, but also has, it kind of digs itself out of a very kind of gray and um, almost kind of stodgy aesthetic to find a fantastical world and about a character who is kind of very sexually naive, kind of like Sarah Joe and sharp stick. Um, she, you know, looks, she has a strong kind of grave countenance, but seems very, very, very vulnerable to her boyfriend um, and really willing to submit herself to this process of bodybuilding, but it's kind of mysterious as to why. And then we see a part of her kind of become, come alive when she has to do sex work in order to pay for, she doesn't tell her boyfriend this, but in order to pay for all of the supplements and steroids that she needs to compete, she begins doing sex work for a kind of high priced um, escort service, which all the men specifically have fetishes for women, women bodybuilders. And one of the men she meets is kind of strange, um, deeply vulnerable man who doesn't assume the hyper-masculine position that her boyfriend does. So it, it's, it's very kind of, I, I think a good film to watch side by side with Sharp Stick about sexual politics and, and the ideas of, I think that have been swirling around about women and agency and their bodies in our, quote-unquote modern society another big buzzword at sundance for sure women's agency yeah that sounds really interesting but thank you so much both cassie and abby for helping us kick off our coverage we'll be back with more podcasts and dispatches and you know we have a whole slate of sundance coverage coming up and we couldn't have asked for uh two better people to start it off with so thank you and wishing you both a happy rest of the Sundance week. Thank you. You too. Thanks to both of you. <laughs> thank you. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Hive, for your consideration, best international feature.
Winner of the World Cinema Grand Jury Prize Directing Award and Audience Award at Sundance, Blerta Basholi's Hive is based on the searing true story of Faria Hoti and the women of Krusha, whose husbands went missing during the war in Kosovo, as they start a business together and struggle against their small village's patriarchal ways. The Hollywood Reporter calls it an engrossing, utterly classic tale of overcoming adversity. Now available in the Academy Screening Room.